0: Hey guys, this is so exciting that you guys are all here. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I'm Rachel.
1: And I'm Alexandra.
0: Um, So this is a particularly exciting week for us because this book just came out on Wednesday and today is our official West Coast launch Um, so it's pretty thrilling because our contributors literally just got their copies of the book Um, so when you guys hear excerpts in a few minutes from them for the first time they are hearing excerpts for the first time too so it's going to be a pretty exciting blind date for us in this room Um, the other thing that's pretty great is that this, yeah, the book came out on the 13th, and I'm proud to say that already we are the number one new release in utopian ideology on Amazon. (laughs) Yeah, so today is really a celebration of that, (laughs) and this book, which has taken three years um, in the making, and so we hope that you guys will all join us once the reading is over for wine and snacks and to ask questions, there's not going to be an official. Q&A so yeah just come and find us and chat with us and then after that we'll do um, a book signing yeah
1: cool. so a lot of you have been involved in this book in some way from the start but for those of you who are new to the project uh We really Rachel and I, as uh, young activists in school, saw that uh, we get so caught up every day in just the work we need to do to survive and to resist misogyny and the terrible wave of backlash that we 're in the middle of, and it 's so hard then to find the time and the space to imagine uh not the world that we 're told is politically feasible but the world that we want and the world that we deserve uh, and that 's uh not the vision that is. Uh, given to us in the 2016 Democratic Platform, but it's the vision that our contributors um, have really brought to life in the pages of this book. And our hope is that it will inspire all of us to imagine more radical feminist futures and will really give us the fire that we need to keep moving in that
0: direction. Yeah, so um, along those lines, you guys all have cards on your seats and there are other cards that are around that ask you to kind of fill in the blanks for what your feminist utopias are. So once this reading is over, we want to hear what some of your uh, feminist fantasies are. We can do a little skylight feminist fantasy poll. Um, So that would be really fun for us. And uh, yeah, that's part of this project. That's why it's called a project. Um, Alexander, on our way here we were thinking about the pieces you're going to hear today and if there's any thread that connects them, that connects our LA pieces. And there totally is, which is that they're all like so Specific and out of left field in a delightful way. You know, we have some pieces that are super comprehensive about like healthcare reform or reproductive justice, but these pieces really show us that you can zoom in on a very specific concern like uh, what children would play with in a feminist utopia or what rituals would look like or how a classroom would be would be laid out and that actually when you put these constraints on utopian imagination you can be so incredibly creative um, and we hope that these really inspire you as they've inspired us. Um, so without Further ado, I think we should just dive into the intro and then we'll pass it on to our first contributor and our contributors will just introduce one another um, and we'll be back at the end of that.
1: Um. So this is how the book starts. We want more. These three simple words are so difficult to say because we, as women, aren't allowed to want much. When we yearn for more, food, power, sex, love, time, we are gluttonous, egomaniacal, slutty, desperate, silly. To want less, to be less hungry, we are told, is to be reasonable. After long enough, we tell ourselves this too. Sexism justifies itself by commandeering our logic and quietly the limits of what is constrict our ideas of what should be. Misogyny comes to taste like air, feel like gravity, so common we barely notice it, so entrenched it's hard to conceive of a world without it. So how can we propose new ways of living when misogyny fogs even our imaginations? And even if we tried, where and when would we organize not just to preserve what we have, but to build a wildly better future? We're in the midst of a feminist resurgence, but we still rarely find a break from today's crises to think about what we might want for tomorrow. How can we dream big when we are constantly playing whack-a-mole with the patriarchy? These questions fueled the project that became the anthology in your hands, or soon to be in your hands. Our hope is that they will spark feminist dreams of your own so that we can all be ambitious, egomaniacal gluttons together.
0: We felt we needed this book now more than ever, because it's easy to internalize the limitations imposed on us by American electoral politics. Our hopes for progress are confined by what usually male politicians tell us we can and can't have. They choose the options, and our demands for anything better are dismissed as unrealistic. Legal abortion? Maybe, but no government support. Protection from pregnancy discrimination? Perhaps, but your employer can treat you as badly as any other worker. Legislation to protect queer and trans people? Fine. But only if it's riddled with religious exemptions. We appeal for legal protection as discrete insular groups, women, queers, people of color, because that is the only way government officials and courts can see us, even though our identities rarely fit into such neat boxes. To make any progress at all, we learn to play by the rules, and gendered inequality can start to feel inevitable. When we started this project in 2012, it certainly felt that way. Alexander had just graduated from college and was busy dealing with the disappointing aftermath of a Title IX complaint that had failed to hold her university responsible for rape. I was still in school writing a play about the slow and insidious erosion of our reproductive rights. Obama was running for re-election, and our choices were preserving the status quo with him or moving backwards with Mitt Romney with no option for great progress. We were at the beginning of our journeys as activists, feminists, and grown-ups, classmates, and friends. And we wondered together if the rest of our lives would be spent playing defense. But our idealism, precisely because it was so easily dismissed, felt like it might just be our ultimate tool. We still thought things could be better. We wanted to know what that would look like, and so we started asking writers, activists, artists, and friends that we admired about their visions for a feminist utopia. So without further ado, I'm going to introduce our first contributor, Will Schlesinger, who, um, yeah, let's give it up for Will Schlesinger. Will um, uh, recently completed a Fulbright fellowship researching the politics of HIV-AIDS immigration and integration in Germany. And he is currently in the first year of an MD-PhD program at UCLA and hopes to combine practicing medicine as a primary care physician with conducting ethnographic research on health inequalities. Will, take us away.
2: Cool. Uh, Thank you all for being here. This is, uh, I guess, just to give a little bit of context. um, This piece uh, started as an essay that I wrote while I was a pre-med in college um, and emerged out of this really particular moment for me that felt very... constrained or just narrow or very clearly defined and so it was really exciting to get to rework this kind of and an opportunity to think about how to make what for me was this particular experience to try to think about it in in a new way so I also just got the book and I'm excited to read all the other visions too so uh, I'll start in the middle of my piece What would healthcare look like if the practice of medicine were vocally and unequivocally oriented toward the fulfillment of feminist goals? My experience as a pre medical student has convinced me that for access to this reality, we need to start over with the education of future physicians. Science will not focus on explaining away our questions, but rather push us to ask the most pressing ones at the forefront of care, beginning with where are we needed? This attitude certainly exists among individual physicians, medical anthropologists, public health professionals, social workers, health advocates, and activists of many stripes. This kind of thinking is already reflected to varying degrees in the missions of certain health-focused organizations. But what would happen if using health care as a vehicle for social justice were to be adopted as the core commitment of pre-medical and medical education? In my feminist utopia, pre-medical education would be designed to instill an understanding that healthcare inequality and the unequal distribution of life chances are not genetically programmed inevitabilities, but rather the result of structural oppression. The history and legacy of sexist, racist, homophobic, and colonial medicine would necessarily be a centerpiece of this curriculum. The doctors trained in these programs would learn to recognize their own careers as opportunities to work toward keeping these circumstances in the pre-utopian past, but they would also be taught that efforts made with ostensibly good intentions don't always necessarily translate into an unambiguously positive result. To achieve this understanding, medical education would be far more interdisciplinary, with students taking courses that expose them to critiques of medicine as a site of violence. Classes in medical anthropology would demonstrate the reality that medical knowledge can pathologize and that ignorant interventions can kill. Work in gender studies and comparative ethnic studies would help connect the social and biological dimensions of health. As doctors trained in these programs started to populate hospitals and clinics across the country, the practice of medicine would open itself up increasingly to knowledges that are currently considered tangential or out of scope. The borders that medicine has constructed around the body as its sole domain would start to dissolve. Differing knowledges around health in the body would not compete for legitimacy, but would rather reinforce one another. The gap between modern biomedicine and traditional or folk remedies would be bridged in the effort to create a multivocal, diverse body of healers. These changes would, of course, be precipitated by a sweeping change in the economics behind medical training and healthcare in general. Pre-medical education would be free, so the graduating students would be able to select their uh, specialty without consideration for how to most expediently repay hundreds of thousands of dollars of accrued debt. This alone might make the shortage in primary care practitioners disappear and would also radically change the demographics in the field. Without financial barriers to a medical education, the profile of the typical medical student would change drastically. Currently, even the application process can be prohibitively expensive. According to statistics released by the Association of American Medical Colleges, the average medical school hopeful submits 14 applications in a given admission cycle, which, with application and MCAT fees alone, easily costs upwards of $2,000. Those who are lucky enough to win a coveted interview spot can expect to pay their own travel and lodging expenses if they can take the time off from work for multiple short notice trips. In a feminist utopia, these financial barriers to a medical education would be unthinkable. As a result, the next generation of physicians would include significantly more doctors who had experienced living in medically underserved areas themselves, which would help keep the priorities of the entire medical community in line with material reality access to health care would be considered a fundamental right nothing could help bring us closer to our utopian goal than the guaranteed provision of quality health care to all regardless of gender identity, race, sexuality income or citizenship status part of maintaining the unequal power relationships that underpin oppression is that certain bodies are allowed to die while others are kept alive in a context permeated with violence against non-normative bodies survival is political but it shouldn't be To reach and protect a feminist utopia, medical education would be geared towards preparing students to best address the needs of those who suffer most. If our doctors always rush to pick up those most in need, we won't leave anyone behind. To preserve the equality achieved in that utopia, doctors would have to keep this priority central to their practice. We'll need to work actively to make sure we don't slip back. In a future where every medical student in the country receiving their diplomas is entering the field with a commitment to doing that work, the power of science and medicine will be channeled towards liberation. Thank you. So uh, next up, it's a real honor and pleasure to introduce Jill Soloway who is the creator and showrunner of Transparent, which recently won two Golden Globes and five Emmys, including one for her directing. She won the 2013 Directing Award at Sundance for her first feature, Afternoon Delight. She co-created theatrical experiences, the Real Life Brady Bunch, the Miss Vagina Pageant, Hollywood Hell House, and Sit and Spin, and co-founded community organization Eastside Jews. She's the author of the memoir, Tiny Ladies and Shiny Pants and the upcoming memoir Would You Still Love Me If Recently she co-founded TV network Wifey and Topple at a production company
3: so. Alright Hi guys mine's, mine's just a little bit funnier than yours Just want to make sure people know they can laugh at mine it's called Lesbo Island. <laughs> um, I wrote it. It's in this book, Tiny Ladies, and I don't know, was it ten years ago, fifteen, a long time ago. It, most of it still st- still makes a lot of sense. Not all of it. My entire life has been leading up to this a call for an unarmed yet mighty revolution, a secession into an all female state with a big old newfounded land, sort of a gigantic utopian honeycomb hideout ruled by me. Yes, me. Until the patriarchy is toppled and a matriarchy run by me, yes, me, is installed. It's freaky, it doesn't matter if I start out writing about firemen or Tostitos or poodles, everything seems to drift back like a shopping cart with a broken wheel to the idea that the only solution to everything wrong is to start a woman-ruled planet and to begin by starting an all-woman land. After I get the first couple of girls there, I probably shouldn't tell the rest of the converts that it's forever. This could scare a few women off, women who are probably dominated by their ingrained love of the patriarchy or their addiction to blended drinks from the coffee bean or supermarket sushi. These are the women I would have to trick. To start, I would just call it my land, (laughs) not our land. In fact, just to be safe, maybe I won't call it Lesbo Island or Womb Town. I'll call it something lovely and light like Feathercrest, so people (laughs) wouldn't have any idea what I was up to. They would turn up for the nature walks or to sample my slow roasted meats, (laughs) perhaps find their muse walking by the pond. But once they're spending their long mornings and their magical afternoons and oh so starry nights under my quiet unspoken rule, they would start to realize, now this is life. Long weekends would turn into just another day until they'd been there a week and then a month. Our first feather-crest village would be a mock-up for the rest of the lands that other women would make after ours goes really, really well. On about 40 acres, we would situate eight or so small cabins, all hidden by enough woodsy goodness that no one can see into your house from their house. This way, any woman who wished to can do naked stretching. <laughs> will not be encouraged in other parts of Feathercrest. No one should (laughs) expect to turn up and strut around the pool with their bush on display. That's for inside your cabin only. Every cabin will have its own wood-burning fireplace and a kitchen. Women are encouraged to purchase their own groceries and eat in their own homes as often as they wish. In the center of the land, however, would be the round center house. Make that center house C-E-N-T-R-E-H-A-U-S. With a giant industrial kitchen, a gathering room, round, and a fireplace, and a gigantic round plasma TV. I think plasma is a dated reference in here, right? Nobody calls them plasmas anymore. (laughs) A giant round TV. Plus the shed where you keep your blow-up rafts, when you don't feel like deflating them for the fall. Um, At Feathercrest, we would be the village that some say it takes. I could be tap, tap, tapping on my computer while Lisa hangs out in the vegetable garden with everyone's kids, pointing out the difference between arugula and frisee. Later that day, Sammy would gather the kids for finger painting while Lisa and I take the station wagon into town for supplies. Every few months, the men would come up for a few days, but as time passed, everyone's relationships would be ruined. And instead of visits, we would just get checks. (laughs) If the checks weren't enough, we would write books or sit in a circle and craft hammocks to sell on the internet and it wouldn't have to be hammocks it could be beaded bracelets or seashell paintings or anything where we sit in a circle and laugh. Babies popping on and off breasts to nurse. While through the screened in porch we'd watch the older children delight in fairy games. (laughs) My sister's cracking up because she knows that fairy is spelled f-a-e-r-i-e. All of that stuff sounds so Dang much better than the urban overscheduled playdate land I live in right now. I only see my woman friends every couple of months. And w- it's only when we plan a girls' night or a ladies' sushis night. We have to actually name things to make them happen. On the land, nothing would be planned. You only come to the center house if you want to. There's no planned meals. There's no chore wheels. There are no meetings. There is no yoga If you're in your cabin and you desire some company, sure, you can walk to the center house and find out what's doing. But by no means can anyone write up a notice saying, Deb's vegetarian chili night at the center house any sort of, pl- of planned group gathering is a recipe for disaster nearly all of my current daily problems here in the real world are rooted in disdain for plans already made if I could remove commitments from my life my mood would improve, pr- improve by at least 13% all of my friends seem to feel that w- way lately too most complaints start with I told Brett I would be at her birthday party but I got my period <laughs> it's the same for my kids Saturday mornings start with do I really have to go to Mia's birthday party can't we just stay home and watch all of those wife swaps that TiVo was about to erase? A couple more dated references. <laughs> wife swap. TiVo. <laughs> At Feathercrest, there are no planned gatherings, only spontaneous ones. So obviously, that rules out Eva- evites, which I've been trying to find a way to do away with for a long time. All of the food would be constantly growing, fresh in the garden, outside of the center. So if there was a sudden rush of people needing to have, say, an unplanned 80s dance party, there'd be plenty of red chard outside that could be gathered into a basket and boiled into sustenance. I'm fast-forwarding now. There's a bunch of other stuff involving not killing people and who we pray to, super goddess. Um, I think men could come for long weekends They could come for Thursday to Sunday or Saturday through Monday, but never Thursday through Monday. (laughs) Um, Boy children can come like Michigan's Women's Music Festival before the age of puberty, I think. Um, (laughs) And I talk about my sister who's here and I talked about you coming out. I hope that wasn't a boundary violation back then. Okay, oh God, here I am. It's not that I hate men, I really don't. I'm just mad that I have to walk into bookstores and find a fucking tiny section called women's studies. Why can't the men have the tiny section? Why can't most of the books, the books about being human, be written by women? I want to be the syllable, man. I want them to be the amended syllable, wo man. I believe I know the... Re- I read this paragraph, it makes no sense. I know I wrote this, but I'm just... This next paragraph is so poorly written. I don't even know what it means if I was to read it out loud to you guys. Okay, I don't, I don't even... I feel like I didn't even proofread my own book. I, can't, I don't know how this got into my book. I believe I know the reason we have to start Feathercrest if my plans for the matriarchal overthrow are ever going to take off. It's possible the reason is hidden in the text of the Da Vinci Code. If only I had the patience to read it. I think it says something like, Mary told Jesus everything he knew, and that sounds about right. Yes, it is time for the change, the end of the way it has been, time for the writing of the original wrong that was done way back when man first noticed that woman was powerful, and as antidote to their powerlessness, men went and built everything, every single thing that I have to fucking live under, including but not limited to a God they call he, Jesus, Allah, and Maxim magazine. <laughs> so sisters, give me time. Keep an eye out for the Feathercrest ads. Though they may be a few decades down the road, and maybe people will start to take notice of Lesbo Island, I mean Feathercrest, and, and we'll bring back that resurgence of feminism I keep calling for. This, this was written before there was a resurgence of feminism, and it happened. There has been a resurgence of feminism. <laughs> It really did happen. It's kind of weird, but it's actually happening. Are we really done making noise? No, we will shout from the tops of our roofs at Feathercrest if we can find the ladders. No, at Feathercrest you will let your hair go free and your bushes go wild. We inf- we offer no blowjobs in Feathercrest. <laughs> no cable, but yes, childcare. Of course, you need to buy this book. So if you're reading a friend's copy right now, get your own because you'll need it when you apply. I did have like an application to Feathercrest in the back book. You should also probably think that this essay is great, super great in fact, for it will be our manifesto, actually our will manifesto. Not to be confused with Kuntifesto, a festival we have twice a year with really good barbecue. Oh. I'll see you guys at Kuntifesto. Okay. Our next reader is Abigail Carney. She is a writer from Ohio. Her plays have been produced at the Secret Theater, the Young Playwrights Festival, the New York International Fringe Festival, and the New School for Drama. She's working on a novel about drug use and magic in a rural town. <laughs> <laughs> Where is she? Oh, come on
4: up. <laughs>
2: Hello,
4: thanks for being here so this was an exciting project for me because I've written many poems about the bad things in our non-feminist utopia Um, and in order to write about a good thing in a feminist utopia I did feel I had to be very specific so this is about one specific thing which is important to me when God becomes a woman most people do not notice one girl with her hands folded kneels beside her bed A woman priest and a man priest say she instead of he on Sunday. A priest marries her daughter to a woman. No one apologizes. The articles drop out of the Bible like swollen fruit. It would be jarring to replace all the he's with she's or worse with it's or he slash she's. So God is only God. God, resting on all the work of creating God had done, a proud bird upon a bird's nest. All right, next we have Cindy. Cindy Oak is a public high school teacher in Los Angeles. She teaches physics, computer science, and math to roughly 200 students per day in seven different classes. <laughs> Hey So I just want to say, because mine's
5: an excerpt from an interview, that this is a uh, condensed interview that I did with Alexandra and that before it was condensed, it was um, had a lot of spaces between each question where I explained how hard this really was. And the reason it was so hard, I think, is because I'm a high school teacher and, you know, high school started always, I think, were a place of oppression and a place of liberation and, you know, like bells were like factories. That's how Bell started in high schools, so for me this was a really difficult and um, long experience to just try to, to dredge up like what would really what we would see in a feminist anti-racist utopia in a classroom. All right. So, okay. So the way teaching works now in most public schools is very industrial. A cost-benefit analysis, a goal of efficiency. There should be a radically active relationship between people and learning a lot more projects, student-run lessons that are truly interdisciplinary and significant. So many artificial boundaries between subjects and disciplines would be bridged. No question would ever be dismissed as not part of the lesson or for a different class because the driving values would be curiosity, self-honesty, self-knowledge, and this broader common good, equity. We would value process over product. So for example, we would teach reproductive health totally differently. Maybe a student would present the history of abortion access in America by interviewing her grandparents, older neighbors about their experiences. Students would be reading personal, cultural, political narratives about abortion early on and continuously, not in a chapter about abortion, but as, but as a byproduct of art reflecting life in the utopia. This kind of education around reproductive justice would be multidisciplinary. Reproductive health would be, not be cloaked in shame and secrecy, and secrecy and euphemisms, and so students could openly learn about the science behind it all. They would work with pharmacists to study the combating processes behind birth control. And of course, they'd be learning about reproductive health in the utopian versions of health classes, which would include knowledge about all the accessible and valuable birth control options, most of which we can only dream of, and explore the statistical and medical realities surrounding abortion. Throughout their education, through books, conversations, interviews, reviews, and visits, they build an understanding and an idea that is whole that brings together the parts that's intimately linked and in a way that acknowledges the history and politics of reproductive health. The fact that all classes, whether it's health or science or history or literature, are feminists, anti racist would be implicitly acknowledged by doing away with electives for gender studies or Chicano studies or even having a section of U.S. history for African-American history as though it's separate from the rest of American history. I just want to say for the podcast that this is not to say that ethnic studies should be abolished. I'm saying in the utopia. Right now, we do need ethnic studies. (laughs) Lessons would be flexible to student need and student interest. For example, this week, one of my students took me up on a trigger warning, and I gave her an alternative assignment, a project that covered the same content in about the same amount of time. And then I just realized I could give both options at the beginning of the class to everyone. And it's a similar key with my students who have special needs or are learning English. To make things accessible, i have guided notes or vocabulary organizers and it's clear that these should be options for everyone. Those that don't need or want them, then great, but we can all benefit from that act of choice. Classrooms can't be neutral. Just like in journalism or in law or in medicine, there's no such thing as objectivity in an absolute sense. Any decision you make as a teacher affects the students and to some degree reveals assumptions you have about them. Whether or not you tell them about your family sets of tone, whether or not you display student work or photos or goals, tell them something about how you will use your position of power. Trying to force a student to be a blank slate, coming into the physics classroom in the singular role as a physics student, takes away from the potential of the classroom as community. If they're people, if they feel like and are treated as the inconsistent and thoughtful and complicated people they are, the class will and can learn more from one another. Thank you. I'm introducing Richard Espinoza. Richard is a recent graduate of Yale's MFA program in graphic design, where he was the director of the Yale AIDS Memorial Project, a localized narrative based alumni led initiative to honor the lives of the deceased students, faculty, and staff affiliated with Yale.
6: <clears throat> Hello. Oh, so many people. <laughs> So, I'm reading a piece that was written by a collaborator named Kate Riley um, about children's toys and the feminist utopia that I illustrated in the book. Um, Oh, cool. I didn't like that for you. Oh, I found it. I found it, yeah. Okay. So, it's called What Will Children Play With in Utopia? Or What is the Opposite of a Mirror? (laughs) <laughs> Measure the sickness of a society by how frequently its children see their own reflections in surfaces, photographs, photo booth, iPad screens, and subtly but relentlessly in software designed to learn, replicate, and reinforce their behavior. A vicious cycle of self-surveillance narrows experience until there is no self left to reflect. In its place, Merely the frantic scramble for confirmation of existence. I am that I look in the mirror. We cannot deny or attack the narcotic effect of the reflection, but must instead give children objects that deflect self absorption and encourage humble reverence for the world. Objects that by their very nature instruct physicality, messiness, and impermanence. What is the opposite of a mirror? Mud absorbs light, coating and deleting everything it touches. Wet sand, yeasted dough, caterpillars, and bubble wrap all teach through touch. And the true opposite of a mirror, another human face, contains and represents all any child needs to learn that other people are. That's all. Oh, sure. Uh, So I made these kind of advertisements um, for this is for dough, (laughs) wet sand and mud, bubble wrapping caterpillars. Um, So, I'm going to introduce Yumi Sakugawa. So, Yumi is an Ignatz Award-nominated comic book artist and the author of I Think I'm in Friend Love with You and Your Illustrated Guide to Becoming One with the Universe. Her comics have also appeared in Bitch, the Best American Non-Required Reading 2014, The Rumpus, The Believer, and other publications. A graduate of the Fine Art Program of University of California, Los Angeles, she lives in L.A.
7: Um, Thank you Skylight for having me. Thank you everyone for being here. Um, So the comic I made is about rituals I want to see in the feminist utopia. I feel like so many rituals that exist for women and girls now, it's about virginity or traditional femininity or um, traditional definitions of marriage. So it was really fun for me to think of what rituals I would like to see and what I would like other young women to experience. Take Seven Rituals from the Feminist Utopia, pre-birth to post-death. In the third trimester before your birth, a map of the universe is drawn on your mother's swollen belly. You are a child of the cosmos. hundred days after your birth, you pick a name that reflects how you feel inside. You tell the world who you are. On your seventh birthday, you wear an invisible crown where tigers roam and lotus flowers bloom. Your weakness is your strength. On your 16th birthday, you shave your head, take a vow of silence, and abstain from all new media technologies for exactly one year. (laughs) Other people's opinions of you are meaningless. On your 40th birthday, you ingest the petals of a crystal cactus flower and walk through the crystal chamber of self-knowledge. You are visible to everyone. On your 80th birthday, you orbit your birth planet in a translucent space pod while sending prayers to all the beings below. We all look up to you. After your death, your ashes are used to form seed bombs, Which are then scattered to all corners of the galaxy. Everyone is equally forgotten and remembered. Thank you.
0: Ah, Guys, thank you all so much for being here. Weren't those pieces all so beautiful? Yeah. And so. Yeah, so powerful. Such a range of topics. So now I want to hear, we want to hear from you guys what some of your feminist utopias are. Raise your hand if you, or raise your card if you filled one out. Did anyone fill one out? Okay, well, we can just chat about them afterwards. Let's do that. We don't want this to be a hierarchical calling on you situation, anyways. So come join us for drinks. There's so much wine, and we're all here to stick around to talk with you. So thank you again for coming. Yeah. <laughs>